right, ladies and gentlemen, we are about ready to start. And this piece of music is one that you've heard a slightly different version of earlier this year. I don't know if that helps anyone. Yes, well, very close. It's the same text, a slightly different translation. How lovely are thy dwellings fair, this particular. But the same thing from Psalm 84. How lovely are thy dwellings fair. But it is uh, a beautiful piece that we're going to talk more about uh, later on in class. And it is a reminder that beauty dwells with the Lord. So let me turn that off and start with prayer. There we go. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this evening and for this chance to be able to gather in your name. Lord, we all come from days that have been full of all sorts of different things. We pray that you would help us to set aside the cares and concerns of the day and to open our hearts to whatever you might have for us tonight. Lord, we pray that you would help us to find wisdom from your word and from the way that Lewis tells the story about how to live in a way that honors you in a culture that may not be going in a good direction. Lord, we pray that you would bless us with your presence this night, for we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let's start by saying our verse together as usual. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So I want to say a word of welcome to all of y'all that are here in person, plus the new folks that are joining us each week on the live stream and other media. And just again, for folks who are new Um, We're glad to have you. There are different ways to approach this class, and I want you to just feel very free to engage at whatever level suits you. You can be on the beach, which means you don't do much of anything but just lie there. Um, You may listen or you may not. Uh, You may not read anything. If that's all you want to do, that is perfectly fine. Glad to have you. Or you can snorkel and go deeper on the parts that you find interesting and then ignore the rest. That is perfectly fine, too. Or you can scuba dive, which means you can go through all of the handouts, you can listen to the music, 
meditate on the words, go back and reread the chapters. Whatever suits you is great, um, but I do uh, strongly suggest that uh, no matter which level you're on, if you're not on our class email list, uh, please either sign up if you're here in person on the purple sheet over there, or if you're remote, Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and send me an email and I will get you added to the list because there are lots of resources that come out with that each week, including a summary of what we did the week before, uh, which maybe if you can't figure out what in the world I was talking about um, during class, the summary may be clearer than what I said. So uh, I commend that to you. Um, I also do want to recommend if you are reading the book, do read this book only one chapter at a time. Um, It can get a little bit overwhelming if you try to do more than that. Um, If you want to read ahead, I know some of you have, feel free. Um, It's very easy to get hooked by the story and really want to know what happens next. So that is all good. So just some review, um, because I think this is so important for us to keep in mind each week as we're moving through the book, that Lewis wrote this book to illustrate the same points he made in The Abolition of Man. And so as you're reading, it's really helpful to go back and look at how some of these concepts are being fleshed out by Lewis's imagination of what it might look like if people uh, did what he predicted would happen in the abolition of man. So the first thing in Men Without Chest is that whole idea of the poison of subjectivism, that there's no such thing as objective value, there's no such thing as right and wrong, there's no such thing as beauty or goodness or truth. Those are just all things that are up for grabs. It is entirely subjective. The second chapter, The Way, is about this idea that from really the beginning of recorded history, across cultures, across time periods, there's been a very consistent idea of what is right and wrong for humans to do. And then the third, The Abolition of Man, Lewis talks about how this idea of man's control of nature, man taking over the world, saying we don't need God, we can do this all on our own, that that effort is actually an effort of some men to use the world as a means to control others. And we have uh, talked about the fact that this is the summation of the Ransom Trilogy or the Space Trilogy or the Deep Heaven Trilogy, or there are lots of different names for it. Uh, But in those first books, the first one, Out of the Silent Planet, uh, is a great science fiction book about a Cambridge professor who's kidnapped and taken to Mars um, to be uh, offered as a human sacrifice. Uh, Most of us probably don't want to get kidnapped by spacemen anyway, um, but knowing on that whole long journey that you're going to be sacrificed um, to some sort of Martian god uh, probably makes the journey even worse. Uh, But fortunately, Ransom escapes from that. Um, Ransom is going to reappear uh, in our story. Then Paralandra is the story of the planet Venus, and it is a creation story, much like the story of Adam and Eve, but without the fall. And it is beautiful. And then we get to that hideous strength, which is the culminating volume that ties up all the loose threads. And we're studying that hideous strength, but if you're scuba diving, please read the other two as well. They're so good. Uh, So the title comes from a medieval poem uh, entitled And Dialogue, and the particular line is the shadow 
of that hideous strength, six mile and more it is of length, referring to the Tower of Babel. The same idea that man thinks he can be in charge, he can do a better job than God, he doesn't need God, he can take things into his own hands and create a world that is going to be wonderful. And Lewis, of course, knows that that is an effort that is doomed from the outset. And Lewis talks in the preface, and we've said this is very important, because remember, he's an Oxford professor, and he talks about that this is a tall story about devilry. And there's a whole aspect of spiritual warfare that is going to appear as we get farther on into this story. Now, I'm going to skip this character list because it's gotten too long. I think I'm just going to take it out uh, and make a little chart about the different communities that may be a little more helpful. So just a quick review, particularly for folks who are new. The first chapter, we meet Jane Studdock, who is a career woman, very bright, newlywed, in her mid-20s, and she is very uh, frustrated that she is um, married and that her career is sort of stuck on hold, and she feels like her husband is kind of keeping her back. Um, But she has these dreams that are very, very disturbing about horrific kinds of events. Mark, her husband, is a professor at Bracton College, um, one of those unique English colleges that doesn't have students, uh, that was given a boatload of money in the Middle Ages by somebody to pray for his soul and to do research about making England greater. And they pretty much abandoned both of those aims and just spend the money on themselves. Um, And then the third part of that chapter is that there is a meeting at the college where they propose selling off Bragdon Wood, which is this ancient, beautiful forest right next to the river that the college owns. It's one of the most historic and ancient sites in all of England and the place where Merlin's Well, Merlin, the great uh, magician from the time of King Arthur, where Merlin's Well was located. And then the Dimbles are this family a professor that Jane had in college and his wife who have always been kind to her. And then in the second chapter, Mark, um, Jane's husband, who is very ambitious, ambitious to a fault, he finds himself as a young 25-year-old newbie at this college invited to dinner with the senior administrators of the college. And he thinks this is the greatest thing that has ever happened. He's very full of himself. He thinks they have recognized, they're so discerning. They've recognized his true worth. And he's going to be elevated up into the upper ranks of this university. But as he goes to the dinner, he discovers that they are interested in talking to him about the nice. What a lovely name, the nice. How could anyone be opposed to an organization called the NICE, the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments. Yes, that should send a chill down your spine. Um, But they tell him that this is going to be the greatest and the latest thing, and you can almost see him salivating about being part of it. And then they invite him to come in. And they tell him on the front end that this is going to be about taking over and reconditioning the human race, controlling and subduing nature, and exerting control over the interplanetary wars. Well, he doesn't know what in the world they're talking about, but he's totally hooked. Meanwhile, Jane has had a particularly terrifying dream, 
And when Mark comes home, she has kind of a breakdown and weeps and clings to him. And then the next morning, she wakes up and she's horrified that she showed emotion and that she wasn't like a man being big and tough and strong. And so she takes it out on Mark. She's very angry at him. And then they go on separate journeys that we spent a long time unpacking. Um, Mark going off to the nice in a sports car where they're running over animals and scaring people that are in the roadways, um, heading um, to the nice, which is currently located in a blood transfusion station. And then Jane is taking a slow, beautiful train through the bucolic English countryside to St. Anne's, a place where she's going to a manor house where she walks by crosses and a church and is up on a hill. That's pretty heavy-handed for Lewis. It's pretty clear um, the difference in the destinations. So then in chapter 3, we learn a little bit more about the nice. The nice specializes in doublespeak. Um, Doublespeak is kind of like those ads for drugs that you see on TV. This is going to save you. It's going to make your life better, except you might die and you could get this cancer or that cancer and 10 other things. It might kill you. Um, It's sort of that sort of thing, that you are told one thing, but then you think, what? What did they really say? What did it mean? Did they actually say anything at all? Or are they just stringing all these words together? So Mark goes there, and he's trying to find out if he has a job. He thinks he's there for a job interview. And so he keeps asking them fairly basic questions like, what is the job? What are the responsibilities of the job? For whom would I be working? And he can't get an answer to any of them, and they just keep blathering on and on about things. So one person that Mark knows, who's an eminent scientist named Bill Hingis, tells Mark, I'm getting out of this nice place. You should not have anything to do with this. I'm advising you to get out now while you can. Jane goes to St. Anne's and has her visit um, and talks about her dreams. And she's very disturbed that the people there tell her that she's part of this larger scheme that's going on, and they want her to cooperate with them. Well, she is fiercely independent and has a horror of being interfered with and does not like that at all. So meanwhile, Mark, back at the Nice, is introduced to Fairy Hardcastle, who is kind of a frightening large woman who is in charge of the Nice secret police which, of course, begs the question, if the nice is really nice, why do they need a secret police force? And then Jane talks again on her way back from St. Anne. She muses about how much she's had to give up by being married and gets really in a snit uh, with her husband. So then chapter four, the liquidation of anachronisms. That's kind of a frightening title. Um, Bell Hingist the uh, eminent scientist who has left the nice is murdered the very night that he leaves under mysterious circumstances. The nice shows up in the town where Bracton College is, this beautiful old English town on a river, and starts turning people out of their homes with bulldozers right outside and telling people you've got a couple of hours to get out all your furniture, everything you own, and if you haven't gotten it out in a couple hours, the bulldozer's just coming through. So rampant destruction. Mark uh, meets the mad parson uh, who is a um, crazy clergyman who is all about 
what you might call the social gospel on steroids. He says, there's no such thing as the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of heaven is on earth, and that uh, Jesus is the son of man, but man is Jesus' son, and so therefore we're God. He's got some very bad theology. And he uh, is all about what the nice is doing. So they assign Mark a propaganda project, and they actually use the word propaganda, about trying to cure people of the idea of thinking that this particular village, which is one of the garden spots of all England, one of those places in travel brochures or Viking River cruises that you would see ads for with the flowers and the thatched roof and all of that, And they're just going to eliminate this village because they've decided the river is inefficient because the river has bends in it. So they're going to take the river and redirect it so it goes in a straight line. But unfortunately, this lovely village is in the way, so they're just going to annihilate the village. And Mark's job is to write a series of articles about why that's a really great idea. So Mark uh, goes and starts working on that. Meanwhile, the workers come from the nice, and they're right outside the beautiful commons room of Bracton College, which is one of these things, if you're familiar with Charleston, um, it looks sort of like the mayor's office at City Hall with this big Palladian window. It's beautiful and ancient. And the workers are having a riot while this faculty meeting is going on, and all of a sudden they hear machine gun fire and then the whole window shatters, and they all are running for cover. So that brings us um, to chapter 5, which was last week, called elasticity. Elasticity is one of the words that the people at the Nice use all the time. Um, Remember about objective truth and the abolition of man, probably the opposite of objective truth would be elasticity, the idea that you don't hold to anything. You just bend and stretch. And so Mark has been for a couple of days at the nice. He still doesn't know if he has a job. So he's gotten really frustrated. So he gets worked up into a big temper and goes crashing into the executive offices, which as the British would say is not done. Not done. So he goes in and he tries to have a showdown, but even that doesn't work. Um, He can't get anything out of this deputy director. And so he goes out of the office and is immediately picked up by the head of the secret police who grabs his arm and more or less drags him to her office and offers him a job writing a different kind of propaganda. This time he is to write propaganda about this criminal who was executed and to rehabilitate the image of the criminal and make him a martyr for the cause. So Mark is to take this person who murdered his wife by poisoning her and somehow turn this guy into a hero through writing propaganda. And Mark is so desperate to be part of the nice that he doesn't even bat an eye about that. So meanwhile, um, it becomes very clear that the nice is going to operate through threats and coercion, And things are not looking good for Mark there. So then the scene switches, and Jane is off on a lovely picnic with Camilla and Arthur Denniston, and she wonders why their friends that they have in their life now are not like Camilla and Arthur, who they used to be friends with. 
because she thinks they're so nice. They're just nice people. And then she discovers that they live at St. Anne's. And remember, she has a horror of St. Anne's, while at the same time feeling sort of attracted to it. She doesn't want to be interfered with. So she learns that the community at St. Anne's is headed by a Mr. Fisher King, which if you are a King Arthur fan, um, you will know King Arthur um, and the Knights of the Round Table. That whole legend is associated with the legend of the Holy Grail. The guardian of the Holy Grail is Mr. Fisher King. But we haven't really gotten to where that's explained yet, so just hold that thought. So Jane is urged by the Denistons to join them and use her gifts to help them because they tell her you don't really have a choice. If you are gifted like this, your gifts are going to be used. It's just a question of do you want them to be used for the good of the world or for evil? And she just doesn't like that because she wants to insist she doesn't have to choose. Uh, So she is resentful about that. So that brings us to tonight's chapter. And uh, there is a lot in this chapter. So we'll just see how we do. Fasten your seatbelts. So the first thing that happens is there's an ever-thickening fog that lands over the whole country. It obscures Bellberry, the Nice, and Edgestow. All the places where the Nice is working are covered with fog. And in some ways, that makes people feel better because now they can't see all the horrible things that are going on, although they can still hear them, although they're slightly muffled. Mark, poor Mark, Mark brings an employment contract in to the office of the deputy director of the NICE. He still hasn't even been told whether he has a job or what the job is he's interviewing for or any of that stuff. So he comes in with this thing that he's waving around, and the deputy director looks at him with a blank stare and says that he understood that Mark had refused the job that was offered to him and that he certainly couldn't offer that job to him again. Well, Mark is shocked by this because he knows he's never been offered a job. He didn't know what the job was, much less have it be offered to him. So he's very confused. And then the deputy director starts assaulting him verbally and saying what a loser Mark is, and he has caused all these quarrels with everyone in the entire nice, and that... He's also learned that he caused lots of problems in the college where he used to work. And he says, the only thing I could possibly do for you is a probationary appointment with a significantly reduced salary from what Mark was already making at the college. And Mark is so desperate because he thinks he's burned all his bridges that he takes this provisionary probationary appointment. On the other hand... The director still refuses to say what the appointment is for, who he's working for, or what he's going to be doing, saying Mark needs to practice elasticity, not caring about these things. So meanwhile, the scene shifts back to Jane, and Jane has been advised by the Denistons, instead of regarding her dreams as nightmares, because she's been seeing her dreams as nightmares or disease that she needs to be cured of. And the Denison said, that's not a good way to look at it. Think of it instead that you are seeing things that are like news reports that are flashing into your head. 
And for whatever reason, that's a little bit of a comfort to her. But now she starts having this creepy dream that she's sort of stuck lying in this bed, and there's this man sitting by her bed with a notebook watching her. And he's got a little pince-nez, and he's taking notes. He's being completely still, and whenever she moves, he's like staring at her. So she's very uncomfortable with this guy, and she doesn't know what it means. And she doesn't say anything to the Denistons about it, because she's hoping that if she's quiet, they'll start asking her lots of questions, and maybe they'll come see her, and she won't actually have to go to St. Anne's, because she doesn't want to go back there. So... Meanwhile, Mark is put to work by Fairy Hardcastle writing articles to try to rehabilitate this criminal Alcasan. And Mark finds that his ego is thrilled by the knowledge that his writing is now appearing in several newspapers read by millions of people in England, not just these academic journals that a very few people read. So he also is very happy to discover that if he needs money, all he needs to go do is go to the steward's window of the nice, and they'll just hand you money um, as much as you would like, because the nice has now started printing the money. They've taken over the currency um, to prevent the economy from having trouble because of all the things that are going wrong. They're just printing more money. And so Mark is very happy about this because that helps make up for the fact that he has this terrible salary now that he's embarrassed and he thinks Jane is going to kill him. So he's very happy about that. And the nice rewards Mark for not complaining by admission to this inner circle. Mark is so desperate to be in the inner group. And this inner circle what he's so excited about is that you get to go sit in the library from 10 p.m. till midnight with the cool people. That's worth sacrificing all your principles for, isn't it? And so um, he is very happy. Um, Lewis says it's like the circle of the bloods in an English public school, the really cool guys um, in a high school, and he feels like he's been admitted to the club And uh, this new guy has appeared, Professor Frost, with well-chiseled features, a pince-nez, and a little pointed beard. Hmm. Meanwhile, the inner circle informs Mark that they are planning to cause a riot. And the riot will appear to be instigated by others, and the riot is going to occur the next day, but they want him to go ahead and write the stories about it so that they're ready to go out although the riot hasn't happened yet. And the nice has planned the riot so that it can increase its powers because the government has what the nice calls red tape, things like people's individual liberties that it wants to be able to get around. So by creating a state of emergency, they can throw out all of the laws and the protections and just do what they want to do. And Mark, to his credit, is actually shocked by this, that they're, they're fomenting these riots and then writing these fake articles about them. He is appalled. Well, all of the other people in this inner circle 
just to laugh uproariously at this. The idea that someone would have principles. What a thought. So they think that this is just hilarious. So Mark is cowed into just going along with it, never noticing that he's agreed to do something that is both immoral and illegal, writing about an event before it occurs, participating in the conspiracy of planning a riot, planning to write a false narrative about it before it occurs, and covering up the true nature and source of the news item. Mark, enamored with being intimately included in the inner circle, has suppressed whatever moral sensibilities he has. Now, note, this is being written in 1943. It may sound eerily familiar, but it was written in 1943. So Mark writes two articles about the riots before they happen for two different newspapers. One, a newspaper that is aimed at an educated, academic sort of audience. Uh, One aimed at the common people. And both praise the response of the nice police. The nice police. What a great phrase. Um, Who have come out to control these riots and save the world from these riots that, of course, the nice started themselves, and urge in these articles the granting of immediate emergency power to the nice. So Mark, who thought he was sort of writing tongue-in-cheek so he could kind of overlook all the lies he's writing, feels very satisfied and thinks this is just a temporary measure where the ends justify the means. So meanwhile, Jane is at home, and she has this really creepy dream where she is in a room with a giant corpse. Sounds great, doesn't it? In a room with a giant corpse that she can't really see, and the only way that she can figure out how to get out of the room is having to touch the corpse to, like, move around. And she touches it and discovers that it's clad in this very coarse, heavily embroidered robe, which she thinks is really odd, but she also feels a strange urge that she should curtsy to this corpse. So, very strange. So, Jane then goes into the village to go shopping. Remember, that's what she always does. Um, When it gets too bad, she goes shopping. So, she goes shopping, and as soon as she gets there, she sees this man with the pince-nez glasses and the pointed beard that she recognizes from her dream. And he gets into a fancy, nice car and she is so terrified and horrified and just feels the evil radiating off this man that she immediately decides to go to St. Anne's on the Hill. She doesn't even go home, but she's just revolted by this man. So there's a lot going on here. That was just a very high-level summary. So we're going to look at some key passages here. So this is Mark's interview. Whether, the director, said he had understood that Mark had already refused the job, he could not in any event renew the offer. He spoke vaguely and alarmingly of strains and frictions, of injudicious behavior, of the danger of making enemies, of the impossibility that the nice could harbor a person who appeared to have quarreled with all its members in the first week. He spoke even more vaguely and alarmingly of conversations he had had with your colleagues at Bracton, which entirely confirmed this view. He doubted if Mark were really suited to a learned career, but disclaimed any intention of giving advice. Only after he had hinted and murmured Mark into a sufficient state of dejection 
Did he throw him like a bone to a dog? The suggestion of an appointment for a probationary period, and roughly, he could not commit the Institute 600 a year, about a third of what he'd been making before, and Mark took it. And you'll see this, there's going to be example after example of this manipulation by power, coercion by power. So then uh, the director continues, we are, as I've said before, more like a family, or even perhaps like a single personality. Hmm. There must be no question of taking your orders from some specified official and considering yourself free to adopt an intransigent attitude to your other colleagues. You must make yourself useful, Mr. Stuttick, generally useful. I do not think the Institute can allow anyone to remain in it who showed a disposition to stand on his rights, who grudged this or that piece of service because it fell outside some function which he had chosen to circumscribe by as rigid definition. On the other hand, it would be quite equally disastrous if you allowed yourself ever to be distracted from your real work by unauthorized collaboration or, worse still, interference with the work of other members. In other words, don't work independently and don't work with other people. Which, of course, is impossible. So no matter what he does, he's violated what he's just been told. So we've got doublespeak going on. We've got cognitive dissonance going on. And then Mark meets the fury again. You haven't done anything about Alcasan yet, she asked. No, said Mark, because I hadn't really decided to stay here, not until this morning. I could come up and look at your materials this afternoon, at least as far as I know, for I haven't yet really found out what I'm supposed to be doing. Elasticity, Sonny. Elasticity, said Miss Hardcastle, you never will. Hmm. You never will find out what you're doing. Your line is to do whatever you're told, and above all, not to bother the old man. There we are, coercive authority again. Then we're back to the fog. The fog, which covered Edgestow as well as Belberry, continued and grew denser. At Edgestow, one regarded it as coming up from the river, but in reality it lay over all the heart of England. It blanketed the whole town so that walls dripped and you could write your name in the dampness on tables and men worked by artificial light at midday. The workings where Bragdon Wood had been ceased to offend conservative eyes and became mere clanging, thuddings, hooting, shouts, curses, and metallic screams in an invisible world. So it's this whole idea of fog and obscuring what's going on. This was still strictly confidential, but the Institute had already powers to force it. This being so, a new adjustment of boundaries between the nice and the college was clearly needed. Busby, the dean who made all this happen, jaw fell when he realized the Institute wanted to come right up to the college walls. He refused, of course, and it was then that he first heard a hint of requisitioning. The college could sell today, and the nice offered a good price. If they did not, compulsion and a merely nominal compensation awaited them. Coercive authority. Are you seeing a theme here? In these days, many members of the progressive element of the college dropped off all those who voted to sell everything. They changed their mind and joined the opposition. And though the college was thus sharply divided within, Yet for the same very reason, it took on a new unity perforce in its relations to the outer world. 
Bracton as a whole bore the blame for bringing the Knights to Edgestow at all. That was unfair for many high authorities at the university had thoroughly approved Bracton's action in doing so, but now that the result was becoming apparent, people refused to remember this. Selective memory and denial of responsibility. We never did that. Oh, you misunderstood. Then, the disturbance in which the Bracton windows had been broken was taken little notice of in the London papers or even in the Edgedo Telegraph, but it was followed by other episodes. There was an indecent assault in one of the mean streets down by the station. There were two beatings up in a public house. There were increasing complaints of threatening and disorderly behavior on the part of the nice workmen, but these complaints never appeared in the papers. Those who had actually seen ugly incidents were surprised to read in the telegraph that the new institute was settling down very comfortably in Edgestow and the most cordial relations developing between it and the natives. Those who had not seen them, the riots, but had only heard of them, finding nothing in the telegraph, dismissed the stories as rumors or exaggerations. Those who had seen them wrote letters to the editor, but the paper did not print their letters. A little eerie again. Uh, Media manipulation, propaganda, and violence that is being sent out to try to accomplish this particular goal. There's going to be trouble here, was the comment of many a citizen. And in a few days, you'd think they wanted trouble. It's not recorded who first said, we need more police. And then at last, the Edgestow Telegraph, the paper, took notice. A shy little article, a cloud no bigger than a man's hand, appeared suggesting that the local police were quite incapable of dealing with the new population. This idea of supplanting the police with the secret police force. So then Jane, seeing the man with the pince-nez, she knew his face already and came to know it infinitely well, the pince-nez, the well-chiseled, rather white features, and the little pointed beard. It was certainly herself whom he appeared to be studying. She had a sort of hope that the longer she kept silent, the more likely they would be to come in and see her again. She wanted comfort, but she wanted it, if possible, without going out to St. Anne's, without meeting the Fisher King and getting drawn into his orbit. This whole idea that we want comfort, we don't want to have to commit to anything. Then, poor Mark, back at the nice, worrying about money. When was one paid? And in the meantime, he was short of petty cash. He'd lost his wallet on his very first night at Bellberry, and it had never been recovered. Hmm. No identification. Hmm. O'Hara, another nice uh, employee, roared with laughter. Sure, you can have any money you like by asking the steward. You mean it's then deducted from one's next check, asked Mark. Man, said the captain, once you're in the institute, God bless it. You needn't bother your head about that. Aren't we going to take over the whole currency question? It's we that make money. Do you mean, gasped Mark, and then paused and added, but they'd come down on you for the lot if you left. What do you want to be talking about leaving for at all, said O'Hara. No one leaves the institute. At least the only one that I ever heard of was old Hengist, who was murdered. So we've got some economic manipulation going on with our old friend, coercive authority. 
And then there's this little break for this funeral service with this really interesting line, the funeral for Bill Hingis in the church with all the fog around it. And it says, Cannon's story took the service. His voice was still beautiful. And there was beauty, too, in his isolation from all that company. He was isolated both by his faith and by his deafness. And it's very striking when you read it in context. It's this beauty that is just shining in the midst of this darkness. Then Mark back at the nice. The pleasantest of all the rewards which fell to Mark for his obedience was admission to the library. He had discovered that this room, though nominally public, was in practice reserved for what one had learned at school to call bloods. And at Bracton, the progressive element, the inner ring. It was on the library hearth rug, and during the hours between 10 and midnight, that the important and confidential talks took place. And that was why when Feverstone one evening sidled up to Mark in the lounge and said, what about a drink in the library? Mark smiled and agreed and harbored no resentment for the last conversation he'd had with Feverstone. Remember, Feverstone said that Mark was an utter idiot and told him to go to hell. But that's not standing in the way. If Mark felt a little contempt of himself for doing so, he repressed and forgot it. That sort of thing was childish and unrealistic. So we see this lure of the inner ring compromising and selling out. And then Mark runs into the crazy parson again, the guy with the really bad theology. It's all going to happen here in this world, and the only world there is. What did the master tell us? Heal the sick, cast out devils, raise the dead. We shall. The Son of Man, that is, man himself, full grown, has power to judge the world, to distribute life without end and punishment without end. You shall see, here and now, it was all very unpleasant. False teaching, false Christ, all sorts of things going on there. Then the part about the riots. The disturbances at Edgestow, answered Feverstone. Oh, said Mark, I haven't been following them very much. Are they becoming serious? They're going to get serious, Sonny, said the Fury, and that's the point. The real riot was timed for next week. All this little stuff was only meant to prepare the ground, but it's been going on too well, damn it. The balloon will have to go up tomorrow or the day after at latest. Mark glanced in bewilderment from her face to Feverstone's. The latter doubled himself up with laughter, and Mark almost automatically gave a jocular turn to his own bewilderment. I think the penny hasn't dropped, Fairy, said Feverstone. You surely didn't imagine, grinned Feverstone, that the fairy left the initiative with the natives. You mean she herself is a disturbance, said Mark? Yes, yes, said Philostrato, his little eyes glistening above his fat cheeks. You mean you've engineered the disturbances, said Mark? To do him justice, his mind was reeling from this new revelation, nor was he aware of any decision to conceal his state of mind. In the snugness and intimacy of that circle, he found his facial muscles and his voice without any conscious volition, taking on the tone of his colleagues. That's a crude way of putting it, said Feverstone. It makes no difference, said Philostrato. That's how things have to be managed. Quite, said Miss Hardcastle. It's always done. Anyone who knows police work will tell you. And as I say, the real thing, the big riot, must take place within the next 48 hours. So here we've got engineered violence for political ends. And then Mark, 
But what's it all for? Emergency regulations, said Feverstone. You'll never get the powers we want in Edstow until the government declares that a state of emergency exists there. Exactly, said Philostrato. It's folly to talk of peaceful revolutions. Not that the Canaglia would always resist. That means the rabble. Often they have to be prodded into it. But until there's the disturbance, the firing, the barricades, no one gets powers to act effectively. There's not enough what you call way on the boat to steer him. So this whole idea of the abuse of emergency powers to abrogate liberties. And then mark back on the articles. But how are we to write it tonight if the thing doesn't even happen until tomorrow at the earliest? Everyone burst out laughing. You'll never manage publicity that way, Mark said Feverstone. You surely don't need to wait for a thing to happen before you tell the story of it. No good, Sonny, said Miss Hardcastle. We've got to get on with it at once. This was the first thing Mark had been asked to do, which he himself, before he did it, clearly knew to be criminal. But the moment of his consent almost escaped his notice. Certainly there was no struggle, no sense of turning a corner. There may have been a time in the world's history when such moments fully revealed their gravity, with witches prophesying on a blasted heath or visible Rubicons to be crossed. But for Mark, it all slipped past in a chatter of laughter, of that intimate laughter between fellow professionals, which of all earthly powers is strongest to make men do very bad things before they are yet individually very bad men. So we've got evil, compromise, self-deception. And then uh, Mark, these are excerpts from some of his articles. It's disquieting to be forced to suspect that the old distrust of planned deficiency and the old jealousy of what's ambiguously called bureaucracy can be so easily that we hope temporarily revived. Though at the same time, this very suspicion, by revealing the gaps and weaknesses in our national level of education, education, abolition of man, emphasizes one of the very diseases which the National Institute exists to cure. That it will cure it, we need have no doubt. The will of the nation is behind this magnificent peace effort, as Mr. Jules has so happily described the nice, and any ill-informed opposition which ventures to try conclusions with it will be, we hope, gently but certainly firmly resisted. And then from the other article, we insisted that the complexity of modern society rendered it an anachronism to confine the actual execution of the will of society to a body of men whose real function was the prevention and detection of crime, that the police, in fact, must be relieved sooner or later of that growing body of coercive functions which do not properly fall within their sphere. The executive of the nice has no connection with politics, and if it ever comes into relation with criminal justice, it does so in the gracious role of a rescuer, a rescuer who can remove the criminal from the harsh sphere of punishment into that of remedial treatment, redefining what criminal justice is all about. And then again, I've got one piece of advice. This is Mark's article. If you hear anyone backbiting the nice police, tell him where he gets off. If you hear anyone comparing them to the Gestapo or the Ogpu, tell him you've heard that one before. 
If you hear anyone talking about the liberties of England, by which he means the liberties of the obscurantist, the Mrs. Grundy's, the bishops, and the capitalist, capitalist, watch that man. He's the enemy. Tell him from me that the nice is the boxing glove on the democracy's fist, and if he doesn't like it, he'd best get out of the way. And this whole idea of liberties as reactionary and stopping progress. And then back to Jane, who's gone shopping and pretending she's looking for a new housekeeper. At the top of Market Street, something happened which finally determined Jane to go to St. Anne's that very day. She came to a place where a big car was standing by the pavement, a nice car. Just as she reached it, a man came out of a shop, cut across her path to speak to the chauffeur of the car, and then got in. He was so close to her that despite the fog, she saw him very clearly. She would have known him anywhere. Not Mark's face, not her own face in a mirror was by now more familiar. She saw the pointed beard, the pince-nez, the face which somehow reminded her of a waxworks face. She had no need to think what she would do. Her body, walking quickly past, seemed of itself to have decided that it was heading for the station and thence for St. Anne's. It was something different from fear, though she was frightened too, almost to the point of nausea, that drove her so unerringly forward. It was a total rejection of, a revulsion from, this man on all levels of her being at once. Dreams sank into insignificance compared with the blinding reality of the man's presence. She shuddered to think that their hands might have touched as she passed him. Visceral evil. Jane wanted to be with nice people, away from nasty people. That nursery distinction, seeming at the moment more important than any larger categories of good and bad or friend and enemy. She was roused from the state by noticing that it was lighter. She looked ahead. Surely that bend in the road was more visible than it ought to be in such a fog. Certainly, what had been gray was becoming white, almost dazzlingly white. A few yards further, a luminous blue was showing overhead, and trees cast shadows. She hadn't seen a shadow for days. And then all of a sudden, the enormous spaces of the sky had become visible, and the pale golden sun. And looking back as she took the turn to the manor, Jane saw that she was standing on the shore of a little green sunlit island, looking down on a sea of white fog, furrowed and ridged yet level on the whole, which spread as far as she could see. So you see light and goodness and beauty versus the fog and evil. So there are a lot of themes in here. Manipulation by power over and over and over, doublespeak, cognitive dissonance, coercive authority, fog and obscurantism, Selective memory, denial of responsibility, media manipulation, propaganda, violence, supplanting the police, comfort without commitment, economic manipulation, beauty that shines in darkness, the lure of the inner ring, compromise, selling out, false teaching, false Christ, engineered violence for political ends, abuse of emergency powers to abrogate liberties, evil compromise and self-deception, disdain of resistance, redefining criminal justice, liberties as reactionary and stopping progress, visceral evil, light and beauty and goodness versus fog and evil. I just have to say, this chapter made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And it reminded me so vividly of Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgy, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So after all that, we need some practices of hope and wisdom. Um, So please read this Philippians verse with me. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So the first principle, first practice, is to seek always to be true to your faith and its principles. And this scripture, I think, is so relevant today. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Second, be aware of the power of beauty and holiness and seek after them. And the scriptures are full of verses about this, but these are just a few. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. And then from Hebrews, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then from Timothy, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And then from 2 Corinthians, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And then thirdly, stand up for what is right, even when it is costly. And this is a great verse from Hebrews. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And then in John, in that high priestly prayer, sanctify them, that is the disciples, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And then lastly, flee 
from evil in all its manifestations. Uh, Proverbs, do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. And then 1 Timothy 6, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And as we look at this chapter, uh, remember that we're not to the end of the book yet. So we're still in the diagnosis, um, which is the bad news. Uh, We are going to see that there is going to be a turn where we see how people begin to respond to everything that is going on. And a lot of what Lewis has in the story about how people respond um, is deeply rooted in Scripture. So don't get too discouraged. Um, But I do think it's just absolutely remarkable to think that this was written in 1943. It's just quite astounding. Uh, And I want to just close with uh, looking at the lyrics from Brahms' German Requiem um, to How Lovely Are Thy Dwellings Fair. And I want to just invite you to say this with me as we close tonight. How lovely are thy dwellings fair, O Lord of hosts, My soul ever longeth and fainteth sore for the blessed courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh do cry to the living God. O blessed are they that in thy house are dwelling. They ever praise thee, O Lord, forevermore. And it's just a reminder to us that no matter how frustrated we may get with what seems to be the triumph of evil, and so many things that seem to be going in the wrong direction, that our salvation is not of this world, that the kingdom of God is a place where truth and beauty and goodness and justice reign, that the war has been won by Jesus on the cross, the battles are still happening, and it is up to us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this book and for its diagnosis, painful though it may be to see. Lord, to help us to understand more and more that there can be no compromise with evil. Lord, we pray that as your people who know you and are called by your name, that you would help us to lean into our faith, to lean into the things of your kingdom, to lean into beauty, truth, and goodness, to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to trust you with our very lives. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy and for this time tonight and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all so much for coming. Um, If you are new, please sign on that little purple sheet over there. Um, Please try to meet someone you haven't met uh, before you leave tonight, and thanks for coming.